the deep, deep love of Jesus, as unmeasured boundless free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. We have confidence that we are complete in Christ. Let's sing together, complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, no work of mine could take, dear Lord, the place of Thine. Thy blood hath bought and bought for me, and I shall stand complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, each one supply, and no good thing to me deny. Since Thou my portion, Lord, will be, I ask no more, complete in Thee. Yea, justified, O blessed God, and sanctified, salvation God, Thy God Thank you. 
begin today, I'd like to ask for some help. This is a little unusual, so I've got to warn you about this or we'll have petrified people. But if you are eight years old, I need you to think and work with me. If you are 16 or 15, 15 or 16, and if you are 19 or 20, has everybody got that? I, I'm, I'm a little bit beyond those myself, but eight years old, 15 or 16, 19 or 20. You all with me? Whoever you are, you need to make a decision right now if you're going to help me out a little later or not. And if you're going to help me out, then I need assertiveness and I need you to follow, okay? So stay awake. I got at least those people's attention. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're going to do something just a little different here by way of visual illustration today. So prepare your minds and uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we look to His Word. Father, we give thanks for your mercies to us in Christ. We praise you for the singing church, for the new song that you give to us, the life in which we are able to bless your name. We thank you for this calling through Christ, for his saving work. And now as we come to the word of God, we plead for the ministry of the Spirit of God to help us to understand, to grow us, to mature us, to Draw us to saving faith for those who know not Christ as Savior and to draw to your knowledge, to your truth, those of us who do. We pray that we would grow and be sanctified as we have just sung and how we praise you for the reality that glorification is not a wishful hope, but a certainty, a hope that is solid on which we can base our confidence and I pray that as we labor here together today that we would strive to be the people that you desire for us to be, that we would uh, seek the Word, seek the conviction of the Spirit, and that you would teach us your grace. And we will thank you for all that you're pleased to do among us here today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. In 1860, American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow toured the Old North Church in Boston and his visit there inspired the poem, Paul Revere's Ride. I can just picture Civil War era children seated cross-legged by an open hearth, wide-eyed, listening with rapt attention as grandfather seated in a rocker reads by the flickering light and his dad is preparing to leave for a great conflict. Listen. Listen my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Longfellow alters facts in his poem, but he writes obviously to inspire American youth with the night Revere altered history as he presented it how he alerted colonial militiamen that British troops were moving by sea. It reminds us of a day when celebrating the selfless bravery and hard-won victories of American heroes was a treasured pastime. It was a vital method of training children. At least on anything like a grand scale, those days are long gone. 
The overriding agenda of public education today seems to be to convince American children how pathetic and how depraved were our nation's founding fathers, military generals, national leaders, and virtually anyone that once garnered respect. Kids are taught that all heroes live in the enlightened present, and that leaders of the past should be viewed with suspicion, if not despised. There is no virtue, I would say, and argue in falsifying facts to create legendary heroes. I would agree with that concern. But a generation that has no historical accounts on which to base its hopes, its dreams, nothing to give it roots and wings, is in a sad state. I'm thankful that my Heavenly Father doesn't think like that. I am thankful that He gives us stories. As citizens of another kingdom, our Heavenly Father knows the importance of telling us stories about real heroes, the true facts, people who served His kingdom with courage and zeal. This is no small thing. He knows His children are inspired, encouraged, rebuked, warned, and instructed by stories of believers who trusted God and served Him with zeal in a hostile world. It's a world in which we live, and we need to see the lives of others who have gone before us. And it's along these lines that God inspired the text of First and Second Chronicles. These historical books were perhaps written by Ezra the priest. We cannot be sure about that. What we do know is this. They were written, these stories were culled from the annals of the kings of, of Israel and Judah, well, specifically of Judah, to encourage and instruct God's people as they return from Babylon to the Promised Land. So thinking of the nation of Israel and their history, they have broken covenant with God time and time again through their history. And in discipline, God sends the northern kingdom to Assyria in captivity, and then the southern kingdom to captivity in Babylon. But now having been subjected in Babylon for seven decades, it is time to come back to the promised land. And that, that's a situation of danger. It's a situation that imposes much hardship. There will be the insecurity and wavering faith of identifying as God's chosen people in a hostile world. Where have you been for all these years? And now you're coming back to this land. Do you know how to operate a nation? Do you know how to follow God? The chronicler, First and Second Chronicles, prepares these returning Israelites with stories. As you compare it with First and Second Kings, it's very clear that he is pulling out certain information and he is hiding some information as far as the facts go. He's very carefully structuring these stories to inspire and, and, to incur, and to encourage. The Israelites have been disciplined. The Babylonian captivity has passed. It's now time to encourage and build up and strengthen them. And so he brings forward stories of courageous faith and zeal. It is not that he hides the sins of those who have failed, but even sometimes where there are kings who failed God and His covenant, there are redeeming aspects that are highlighted. That's what's happening in these books. In the next several weeks, Lord willing, we'll consider one king whose story we find toward the end of 2 Chronicles. I invite you to chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles. His name was Josiah. What do you know about Josiah? Could you describe him to anyone? Could you explain his background do you know who this king is? They all get kind of mushed together, don't they? We start to lose who they are in their distinctiveness. We don't live with them. We don't see them. And so it's a challenge for us. But here is a story we must remember. It's not embellished. It's told as it really happened from the eye of God. This man, Josiah, the Spirit preserves this story for our edification as well. Not only to encourage the Israelites returning to the land, but to encourage us as God's people. 
It's a story that roots us in a much larger story that defines us as God's people today. It's not a story that ends here, but it's one that is part of that grand scheme and account. Second Chronicles 34, we look first of all in the first two verses at the bookends of Josiah's reign. We're looking at the beginning and the end. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. We look there at the two bookends, the first being that he is eight years old, and the second being that he gains God's approval for his labor, for his work. Eight years of age. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Let's look more at the end of the game. The determination of who he is. Every king of Israel, the northern kingdom, after the nation split under Rehoboam, and every king of the southern kingdom of Judah is given a pass-fail grade by God. In these historical books, every king is analyzed. He was either righteous or he was evil, and it stands today. Each king is judged one way or the other, and the criteria for this test is how they honored or failed to honor God's covenant with Israel. Kings of God's chosen nation served in a mediatorial role, in a sense as representative of God to the people, in a distinct way from the priesthood, but in a very real way as rulers, such that every king either led God's chosen nation toward the Lord or away from Him. And when God gave the pass or fail, that's what He is looking at their obedience to the covenant, and how they pointed the nation to honor or dishonor the Lord. Now, there, there really, if we think about this for a moment, there's probably some confusion. I mean, does life really work like that? Everybody is in one box or the other? Is it, what we know about people's lives is that there's a lot of gray area, isn't there? In nearly 500 years of Judean kings, not one of them had a foot on both sides? You're going to put every single one into good king, bad king? There's nobody in the middle? We don't think like that. We don't see that. It doesn't even seem realistic when we relate to people in our world. We certainly know some politicians that are very much in the gray zone. There's also, I think, some confusion as we think about it biblically. Doesn't Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 14.1, There is not one who does good. Quoted by the Apostle Paul who, who adds, Not even one. Do you remember perhaps back to school days, some of you, some of you remember very well and you wish I hadn't brought it up, but do you remember that every once in a while you had a teacher in a class that graded on a curve? The class just really couldn't do it and so they kind of changed the scale so those who did best got the best grade and those who did poorly got a worse grade. Is God doing that here? Is he grading on a curve? Well, let's think about these objections. First, on the authority of Scripture, we can be certain that Josiah did not earn a righteous standing with God because he was innately good. That's not the point. That's not what the text is saying. On the other hand, we should not read too much of the New Testament back into this phrase to use categories of systematic theology. This is not imparted righteousness and it's not imputed righteousness. That means he didn't earn it. It's not imparted to him because he deserved it. It's not imputed righteousness where all that this is saying is God has chosen this king to place his love upon him. Rather, I think we should take it just straightforward in a straightforward manner and read it, read not too much into it, but simply to say that Josiah was, all things considered, a king who ruled to encourage God's people to honor their covenant with him. When you looked at the end of his life, you have to say that king pointed people to God. 
It's not saying that he was perfect. It doesn't say he's earned his position with God. It's just saying he pointed them to God. He was faithful to the covenant, to his role as a king. In fact, he was so faithful that the chronicler says he walked in the ways of David his father. There's only one other king who gets that kind of press in First and Second Chronicles, and that's Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, who was a remarkable king. It says, in fact, of Josiah, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. If you are, are seeped in the wording of the book of Deuteronomy, you hear that phrase again and again, which means he obeyed the covenant. He walked in faithfulness to God. He didn't verge to the right or to the left. Well, right now, Judah's a train wreck. At eight years of age, as this king comes to the throne, they have verged far to the right, far to the left. They don't even know where the path is anymore. But this man did not verge one way or the other. When all was said, his life was lived in faithfulness to the Lord. He characteristically obeyed God's law, and he characteristically pointed the people there. He wasn't a perfect man, but in this sense, he was a righteous king. I, I stop here and emphasize this. We don't do so very often because as we deal with the kings, this phrase is there for everyone, but I think we need to stop here and recognize that that determination by God is in the future for every one of us. It's out there for you. There's going to be a pass-fail. The pastor who buries you may lie about you at your funeral service, whether intentionally or unwittingly. Many people may not be able to figure out who you are. They, they might think you're worse than you are. They might think that you're better than you are. But that at the end of our lives, we will meet our Maker, our Creator, the One who knows everything about us, the One who knows about you and your soul what you don't understand yourself. What I don't see in myself, He knows that perfectly. I will stand before that Maker. And I will stand as one who is received as righteous or who is cast out as lost. What we're seeing here with the kings is a reflection of how God operates, of who our God is. And what we find in Scripture is that He never grades on a curve. I mean, in some sense you could say that with the kings because they're not perfect people. It's not that. But He does not grade on a curve. The God of Scripture seems to be allergic to gray tones, doesn't He? Now, we need to be careful because there is a lot of gray when you're people. But how often do you see God landing in the gray zone? Good, bad, sheep, goats, light, darkness, in, out, saved, lost, heaven, hell. Every time that God weighs in on the spiritual condition and eternal destiny of people, it is in or out. It is never not sure. Now, we're unsure. But let's remember, God never is. Do you, can you think of any text of Scripture where we see God deliberating? I'm really not sure what category to put this person in. We don't see it anywhere. And so we need to be assured of this, that when we die, God will render decisive and perfect judgment. There may well be some here today that would say, now oh, come on, pastor, that's a scare tactic. Don't, aren't you reading the newspapers and realizing that's outmoded? You're not supposed to scare people like that. Not to try to get them to act a certain way because they're going to meet God and be scared of Him. Trying to rattle people with the fear of God. I would say in answer to that objection, if you do not possess a healthy fear of meeting your Maker, you're a moral fool who needs to wake up. You've got to face it that you're going to face God. And He's not going to be confused about who you are. He's going to render decisive judgment. He has said in His Word it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that, the judgment. If you're not moved by that, if that doesn't direct your daily life, then you're not facing reality. And you're in a gray zone. You're in a cloud of confusion. 
The bald reality is that I will stand before God and He will declare me righteous or lost. Which will it be for you? I'd like to return to that thought. Just let it sit there. Before returning to that thought, though, let's turn now to the other bookend of Josiah's reign, the beginning. The end was he was a righteous king. This was the determination that God made on the basis of the facts of his life. But Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Let's look on the front side of it. All right, eight-year-olds, are you ready? If you're eight years old, I want you to do something really daring and to walk up here and just stand at the front. We need to get a good look at you because I can't remember what eight looks like. I was there once, but I can't remember. Do we have one eight-year-old or just one courageous (laughs) eight-year-old? Aiden, good job. How are you? You weren't counting on this this morning, were you? And you tell him, I did not tell you this was going to happen, right? (laughs) I I really didn't. Help me out here, Aiden. All right, this, this is an eight-year-old young man. This is a king. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Thank you. That's really helpful. Appreciate it. Eight years old, that's the king of Judah. Now, what picture do you get? Palace servants running around, meeting every demand of a bratty second grader. Aiden's not a bratty second grader. I'm not saying that. But is that, that the picture that we get? There's this, little, this eight-year-old, the, the crown's like bigger than his head, and he's pounding his scepter, telling them he wants what he wants. Uh, of course not. That, uh, no one would suspect that. But in 33.25, you notice there that the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place of, as Ammon dies. The people of the land certainly included some wise advisors who ruled the nation, but also labored to train Josiah along the way. We also know from 2 Kings 22 that his mother, mother Jedidah, was alive, and we would assume perhaps past the death of her husband, and so she perhaps had a hand also in training her son and directing him with authority. Some believe the prophet Jeremiah may have influenced the boy as well. But the glory of those who ran the nation for him and trained him may well be evidenced by the fact that we don't know their names. They were faithful to their task. They honored their king by making the decisions of state for him and yet at the same time training him and at the same time refusing to use their powers to conspire against him. That was not unprecedented for them to use their powers that way, but they did not. They raised this young boy. That was their king. A boy that looked probably a whole lot like Aden was ruling the nation, at least in position of authority, being guided, steered along, and directed as was appropriate for his age. Now, ultimately, it was God who steered his heart such that Josiah would follow in the steps of King David and stay on the path of obedience to God's covenant with Israel. We put the credit firmly where it belongs, and that is with the Lord. It was an amazing young man. And there are two evidences that are offered for this claim that he walked in the ways of the Lord, that he was righteous, that he honored the path that David had set forward of loving God with zeal and passion. And that first evidence we find there in verse 3, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to speak I'm sorry, he began to seek the God of David, his father. So, 15, 16-year-olds, somebody come up and give us a look. Please, come quickly. Is there any courageous 15 and 16-year-olds? There we go. Thank you. We're going to have one representative of each age here. All right. Aiden has grown a little bit. (laughs) He's gotten a little bit taller. PJ, good to see you. I did not prepare you for this, right? other than this, in this setting. Just let everybody know that. But here, here's a young man, and uh, he's taller than I am, but, but he's, he's not as beefy as I am, is he? <laughs> this is the king now that began to seek the Lord. Thank you, PJ. Appreciate it. He began to seek the Lord. It says here, while he was yet a boy. I, I, I think the chronicler accepts the fact that we can add, right? 
He's eight years old, and it's his eighth year of his reign. This is a 16-year-old young man. He might have been 15, depending on where his birthday fell. But if Josiah was eight years old when his reign started, he's now in his eighth year. He's obviously still a youth. Why put that in there? I think, and this is interesting, because the Kings does not record this statement that he was a young man uh, at eight years of age when he became the king. It doesn't record this statement particularly and the Hebrew word that's used is, could be translated boy. He was a boy. The point is not that he was immature and irresponsible. Many boys of that age were married. His father was married at that time of age. He, he, but it means he was not old enough yet to reign. We appreciate PJ. He's a young man that's growing in maturity. I don't think that he'll be on the docket to pastor the church here in next week or next month, right? He's not ready for that yet. It's not where, where he's at in life and in, in his mode and just what he's learning and how he's growing, how a 16-year-old would grow. He's not yet at the place where he can reign. And that age was typically understood to be 20 years of age. Then he could reign. Then he was considered to be fully ready, age-wise, to lead the nation. Somewhere in the range of 14, generally more 15 or 16, boys would be married by that age. Then with a couple of years, four years perhaps, to adjust to that, they were then ready to lead. He's not there yet as he begins to seek the Lord. Now, seeking the Lord in Josiah's day was no safe or easy enterprise. Certainly not for a teenager. Thinking back on it a bit, Josiah's great-grandfather, I'm sorry, his grandfather, Manasseh, reigned for 55 years and was an unusually unfaithful king. This is significant. Notice chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Remember why God brought them into the land in part? I'm going to wait until the iniquity of the Canaanites is so full that the garbage of sin is so reeking so badly that the only answer will be to exterminate them. And Manasseh led the people of God to do worse. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made, Asherah, and made Asheroth. And he worshipped all of the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. These altars are not altars to God, or perhaps syncretistically on some level, but they are altars to the pagan gods, the Baals, the Asherah, or the Asheroth in the plural. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom right there by Jerusalem, and used fortune-telling omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of whom God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. It's holy unto my name. Manasseh came in and put an image there to another god. It's the ultimate offense. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, the rules given through Moses. This is what the law said, and he violated. But notice this, verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This was the pattern for half a century and more. This is the world, this is the kingdom that Josiah inherits. 
Then his father Ammon ranges two years and does nothing to recover Israel for God. So Josiah inherits a kingdom that was, had wholly forsaken the Lord. For over half a century, Israel had been serving the Canaanite gods with abandon. And that means that everywhere that you looked, there were altars on the top of hills and mountaintops with tall incense pillars on them, positioned often under trees, but also in the cities and constructed earthen mounds, drawing attention everywhere you looked to the fact that the gods of Canaan ruled the hearts of God's people. These altars announced this, and on occasion, you would see a column of smoke. Even in the capital city of Jerusalem, you would see a column of smoke rising from the valley outside the city walls. And there, some parent was taking their child, putting them on an altar, and burning them in sacrifice to these false gods. It's in that setting, thoroughly entrenched in the worship of the nations who had inhabited this land for so very long, thoroughly entrenched in that way of life. It's in that situation that the 15, 16-year-old Josiah had the gall to seek God. He had the guts to say, I'm going to seek the Lord. It means that he began to put his full trust in God. He began to yield to the call to grow in holiness and oppose wickedness. He began to grow in the sense that God is the one true and living God and all the false gods of the nations are nothing more than their own imaginations. He began to perceive that the sacrifices of children on these altars was a crime against the Maker and the Sustainer of the universe. He began to orient his life to say this, God has spoken, I will obey. He saw the counsel of God as his hope. Josiah's heart began to fill also with zeal for God and to stir him to do whatever God called him to do. And at his age, in this land, that took unusual courage supplied by God's Spirit. Did the 16-year-old Josiah know where this was going to take him? Did he know the danger of it? I can imagine some people coming around at least speaking to him behind his back. Advising him to take it easy, to be cautious. You're going to put yourself in a spot here where there aren't many options. But a flame of zeal was beginning to burn in Josiah's heart. And such zeal can only find satisfaction in bringing glory to God and God alone. And so he began to seek the Lord. Now let me speak specifically to the young people among us. You're still living at home. You're not free and on your own at this point, but living under the tutelage of others, under the tutelage of this church, under the tutelage of parents. One of the most foolish things, young people, that you can say is, I will serve God when I get older. I'll serve God when I grow up. I'll serve God when I get older. I'll serve God when I go out on my own. I'll serve God when I start a family. I'll serve God later. The reasons that you say that are not going to go away when you get older. You may think they are. They're not going to go away. The reasons that you say that are going to face you one step at a time into the future. The reasons you don't really want to pursue holiness in a godless world, those reasons will be with you until you seek the Lord. And that's going to be no easier when you get older. As God's counsel says to us through the prophet Isaiah, seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. There is forgiveness in the Lord. 
There is restoration in Him, and there is in Him your soul's deepest satisfaction. Seek Him now. Don't wait. We look through Scripture and we see individuals like Samuel, the young boy Samuel, saying, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And going on to serve God from his youth. We see David, who in the zeal of the Lord as a teenager kills Goliath. We see Mary, who as a teen yields to God's plan to bear Messiah. We see young people seeking the Lord. It is never too early to start. Seek the Lord today. Choose not to be intimidated by peer pressure. Josiah was not. I'm sure he was fearful. He's looking around. He's not an idiot. He knows what this is going to mean. He is very much a minority in the land, and there is a call now that is upon his life. But don't give in to peer pressure. Refuse to cave to the passions of the flesh. Know that in God alone is your soul's satisfaction. Serve Him now. You find any older person who loves the Lord and they'll tell you the same thing. I have yet to meet any believer who has said, I'm really glad I ran in sin for a while. No one has ever told me that that's come back to the Lord. They've all said, I wish I had turned sooner. I've heard many, many words of regret. Why did I not act sooner? And for those of us who are a long ways down the road from 8 and 16, maybe you still sense nothing but discouragement of why you did not orient your life toward the Lord sooner. The only thing that matters for us is today. It's where our nose and our toes are pointed. Start today to seek the Lord. Today is the day. Don't put it off. Don't look back and use that excuse. It's too late. Too much has passed. There's no hope for me now. Seek the Lord, and He will pardon. He will forgive. He will restore, and you will find in Him your joy. The second evidence of Josiah's righteousness is seen in Josiah's cleansing Israel of idol worship. Verse 3, And in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. His twelfth year, he's now 19 or 20. Do we have one? Let's see the 19 or 20. We've got to have one. That's all we have. Now, it, it, it looks like Josiah shrunk a little bit. I don't know what happened here, but... Thomas is a good guy. You need to meet him if you don't get a chance to because he's leaving real soon, aren't you? Back to Laterno College in some cool state like (laughs) Texas or something. But Now at this age, I mean, just get a look at this young man. Forgive me and ignore all those people out there. Just get a look at this young man. Look where he's at in life. Look at his age. Look how he relates to an old guy like me. And just think about this. The 8-year-old, the 16-year-old, the 20-year-old. Thank you. Appreciate it. It helps us just visualize, to see. What we would understand here is that at this age in Josiah's life, he is now free to rule on his own. Could you imagine that? You wake up one day, it's your 20th birthday. I'm, I don't play with some of the facts. I don't know how, exactly how this worked. But essentially, you wake up one day, you're 20 years old, and now you're the king of the nation. And those advisors that have been guiding you and making the decisions of state, you can fire them. In fact, you can execute them if you wish to, and you want to deal with the political fallout, but you can. There's no law against it. You can do what you want to do. Now think of the temptations there. Think of the options that are there for you as a 20-year-old king. What 
Where would Josiah be if at 16 years of age he was just doing his own thing? But in those years, in seeking the Lord, he was ready. And at 20 years of age, this is what we read, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. The Asherim and the carved and metal images. The high places, the places of pagan worship, he begins to purge. The Hebrew word is used in context of ceremonial cleansing under the law, such as the healing of a a leper. That's what Elisha said. The name, and go and wash and be cleansed of your sin. He's cleansing the land. He's purifying it, purging it. The land reeked of idolatry, and Josiah set out to purge it of its filth and to restore the worship of Yahweh as far as he could. And so he tears down these high places. The Asherim idols, that Asher, the chief goddess of the Canaanites, her characteristics varied widely depending on where you were. Nobody cared about that. It wasn't real anyway. It was just all make-believe, and they made up things about her at one place and another in her most ancient temple located very close to where uh, Josiah is reigning in Ashkelon. Her temple was located, or, or she was pictured like a mermaid, essentially. Her bottom half was a fish and the top half a human. He's tearing down these images, carved in metal images, that is carved out of wood and stone or molten, molten uh, metal cast in a mold. These kinds of little gods that were stationed around these altars, he's casting them down, tearing them down. Verse 4, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. Baal, the chief male god of the Canaanites, a sun god, a god who was appeased by sacrificing children in the fire. In his presence, Josiah, that is, oversaw the work. He's lending his authority to the troops as they go out. There's protection there. There's authority on his part. And he's watching over the fact that it gets done. The incense altars were pillars that rose up on top of the altar, like a a pillar just stretched out into the sky. And incense would be offered there and it would be seen and it would uh, provide an aroma for that area. He rips it all down. Verse 4, he also broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them. He pulverized them, the Hebrew word is. He scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. This would have defiled the materials that were used to construct these false gods. And he also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He burned the bones, the bones of the priests that would indicate they've already died. They're in some shrine around here, and they don't generally bury in the earth in this part of the world, but bury into rock. And so they were able to go into these places and gather the bones of these priests and burn them on the altars, forever desecrating the bones, the altars, and everything. He just cleaned house. We'll talk more of that in the future. He did this with the, throughout Judah and Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, verse 5. You notice that. And, verse 6, the work carries on. Now this 20-year-old has some zeal. He, he has some initiative. He goes out and gets this done. Now what he does is even more daring. This is his kingdom. But now he ventures out into the northern kingdom and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon as far as Naphtali in their ruins all around. He went into these regions that are to the north that belong to Israel. Assyria has long ago conquered Israel, so the power in the north is Assyria. He's moving into these regions and saying, I'll take on Assyria if that's what it means because this is God's land. Now, in the providence of God, there's only one way he got out of southern uh, Judah, and that's because Assyria was in great trial and was growing extremely weak. There were so many rebellions around the kingdom, they weren't worrying about 
uh, Canaan at this point in time, but he takes that opportunity, he goes into the north, and he carries on the same agenda. He broke down, verse 7, the altars, and he beat the Asherim and the images into powder, and he cut down all the incense altars, altars throughout all the land of Israel, returning then to his land, to his kingdom, and his city of Jerusalem. The ruins all around, probably speaking of the ruined cities destroyed by Assyria, but it was a mission of total eradication. As he goes through the north, there are cities destroyed. The Assyrian power has left. The people of the land are no longer committed to God. They haven't been for a very, very long time. Many of them not even Israelites. Cities in ruins. But he still goes through the land and purges it of this false worship. In our day, people would look at Josiah as a nutcase. This crazed, mean-spirited guy won't let people worship the way they want to worship. Now, as the followers of Christ, some of this approach would not be part of the terms of the new covenant, whose blessings we enjoy. But Josiah knew that as the mediatorial king of God's people in the promised land, this was what God desired. And he had every right to do it. With courageous zeal, devotion to God, he led this military campaign against the powers of darkness. And in the end, he returned home in victory. As the story of Judah unfolds, it becomes clear that Josiah cannot change the hearts of the people. None of us can. It's impossible. But he does have a reign. It's the beginning of the end of Judah. It's a very bright spot in the story. He would go on to oversee one of the most prosperous times in Judah's history, particularly because Assyria was falling apart. There was no power yet in the land. Babylon had not yet taken possession, and so he enjoyed a very prosperous reign. Perhaps more on that later, but let's stop for a few moments to consider the significance of the fact that Josiah led this expedition at age 20. A zeal for God, an initiative and courage to venture out and act. And on this side of the cross, our conquests are different, aren't they? They're not as physical in nature as we find in this passage. They are serving others, advancing the gospel, building up the church for which Christ died, all in a hostile world that serves idols. But there is a call for every one of us as we consider Josiah's reign to live in zeal of spirit to serve Christ with courageous enterprise to the ends of the earth. In the spirit of William Carey, the English Baptist missionary to India, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. That's what Josiah did. He did just that, and he lived a life that was worth living. But let me return just for a moment, to our earlier consideration of a righteous standing before God. It would be a serious mistake if we took from this narrative the notion that it is a timeless call for us to be good boys and girls. <clears throat> that's the idea here. That's all that's being said. King Josiah was enabled by God to reform Israel. That's the history of it. But as the revelation of the Bible unfolds, we come to realize that we need a king who not only reforms us, but who transforms us. Josiah's conquest was incomplete. He could never write the law of God on the hearts of God's people. He could do his part at that particular point in history, but we need a king who's a greater savior than this one. Our God is a holy God. And when we consider our standing before Him, we should not have any sense that we can be good enough to merit God's approval. There is no one here destined by virtue of your own goodness to be declared righteous before God. No one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When God says, do not lie, we take liberties. And we misrepresent the truth. 
When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, we don't put it this way, but in fact, what we're saying is not a chance. Not a chance. Against God's law, we love ourselves supremely and we worship idols in His place. We allow other loves to order our thoughts, our actions, our affections. What we need is not a righteousness like Josiah's that simply was saying overall he pointed people to God. We need a righteousness that will allow us to stand in eternity before a God who will judge us as either righteous or lost. And this is the wonder of the story to which Josiah points us, is that there is a king who came to be the sacrifice. Not merely to destroy false sacrifice, but defeating Satan and sin. He dies in our place to pay the penalty and the cost of our rebellion against God. Josiah is an inspiring story, but if Josiah's story does not lock into the larger story of redemption orchestrated by Jesus Christ, this story is meaningless. It helps us. It's encouraging to us, but it points us to the greater king. In the end, Josiah will not be able to deliver his people, but Jesus did, Jesus does, and Jesus will for all eternity because we will stand righteous before God in the righteousness that is put to our account by Christ. Do we not see the pointers back as Jesus at the temple with zeal for God allowed Himself to be left behind at the temple at 12 years of age and said, I must be about my Father's business. Well, there's some maturity things there at age 12 in his humanity that he had to get figured out. And he did end up going back up north. But we see the zeal of the great king beginning there at a young age. Jesus serving the Lord at the first opportunity, like Josiah cleansing the land at the first opportunity. It is a call for us to respond to the story of our great king. And to respond to that story by skiing in its wake, by walking its trail, by living it out in our lives. Father, we give thanks for this passage, for this account, for your grace to us in Christ. And I plead that anyone who knows not Christ the Savior will seek their righteousness in what Jesus has done. For those of us who know you as Savior, may we rejoice, may we give thanks, and may we take to heart this account and see in Christ our Savior our call to live with zeal and courage for your cause. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand with me for just a few moments in silence. Let's reflect in our own hearts. Think upon this story in reflection, meditation, confession, prayers, and consider what